This morning I have uh, a different text and a different sermon for you than you see in your bulletin. The sermon title is taken from the Gospel of John, and it is, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Last night I had a dream, and I'm not mimicking Martin Luther King as I tell you this, um, but I did have a dream, and the dream went like this. I had stopped at a farm, and the family was harvesting onions. Why onions? I don't know. Uh, most of what they were selling, though, at the farm stand was squash. Now, I don't know what time of the season it was. It seemed to me that it was early in the season, but it's all around on the benches that the fruit was set on, everywhere that I walked, the, the place was completely plastered with moths. Uh, and they were flying all around me, and moths are irritating. They don't hurt, but they are irritating. And I looked over, and in the vicinity of the table where some of the uh, vegetables were being sold was an older, crusty father, and not in his vicinity at a distance from him, but also present, was... Uh, a young and a ripped son. Now, those of you that are older might not know that that means that he had prominent muscles. Muscles. Um, he was, I don't think he was a bodybuilder, but he definitely was a young man in the prime of life. He was, I think, somewhere around 17 years old. It was interesting that the son and the father were not working together, but instead they were working at a distance from each other and that there was really no sign of warmth between them. So after going around the farm stand for a little while, I decided to focus in on the squash. They had a lot of squash, but it wasn't squash that I was used to. It wasn't butternut or acorn or summer squash. It was weird colors and weird shapes. So I walked over to one little basket, and uh, I pointed to the basket, and about that time, the sun came over next to me, and uh, I inquired, what, what was this strange squash there in the basket? And it was obvious in the way the sun responded that he was very proud that this particular squash was the family's pride and joy. And so he began to tell me what that kind of squash was. I don't remember the name. I just remember that he had pride and that he began to describe it to me until all of a sudden the father walked over and spoke to the son brusquely and uh, he told him, get the moths off of him. So the son, hearing his father's command, walked up to me and I could tell they weren't people that were used to standing next to each other. Usually they had quite a lot of body distance. And he began trying to scrape the moths away from me so that I wasn't being bothered by them. And even then, the father was closer, but they kept their distance from each other. And I knew that the son was very embarrassed to have to be working on my person. So again, I asked about the squash, and the son began to describe it again with politeness and pride. But as quickly as he described his family's squash, his father squashed him. I don't remember his exact words, but it was something like, no, you fool, that's not... And then the father changed the name slightly, making it clear that he was the expert in this matter and that he only put up with his son as one puts up with a fool, laboriously and with no joy. 
As the father and son had this brief exchange, I became aware of the wife and mother. She was in the distance, in the house, behind the screen door, not where they could see her, but I knew she was there. I turned to the next brand of squash. I asked its name, a little bit about what it tasted like, how to cook it. Again, the the son sprang to life. He named it. He began to describe it, again with pride in his family's product and work, but again almost before he could get his first sentence out of his mouth. The father cut him off roughly. He found fault with everything he said, and in a mocking way, he told me, his customer, what a fool he had for a son, and so it went. Well, you all have been in a similar circumstance, and it's very embarrassing. You don't know what to do. One of the privileges of being a pastor is that when you get into awkward situations, people allow you to speak into their lives in a way most people aren't allowed to speak. And being a son and being a father, as I stood there, I thought, I know exactly what's going on here. The father is a crusty old dude. Uh, His existence is now defined Uh, by bitterness. He's on his way out of life. He knows that. His son is coming into his prime. Where the son is handsome and ready for love, the father has found love a betrayer, and he is not about to put his hope in it again. Certainly not for this idiot he has for a son. Where the son was energetic and eager to please, the father was impossible to please. Where the son was polite, the father was gruff and dismissive. And I could go on about this home. Some of you could tell me exactly what it's like. But as I say, because I was a son and am a father myself, my heart went out to these two men. As I watched them at the end of their years together, I was certain that within another year the son would be gone and probably would rarely come back to that home and only because his mother pled with him if he did come back. They were completely unable to communicate with each other, let alone love one another or take joy in working together, which really is the ultimate expression of the love of a father and his son, that they work together. And it was so evident that down to the core of this son that his greatest desire was to please his father. But it was also clear, watching the father, that he neither could nor would be pleased. It was a matter of his will. And it seemed at that point in his life he lived to prove the hopelessness of life and to make everyone around him suffer for his griefs and disappointments, extracting from each of them whatever part of his own torment he felt they rightfully owned. And of course, he had determined that his son owned much of the responsibility for all the things that had gone wrong in his father's life. Wasn't it obvious to any impartial observer that his son was a fool? Ask him a simple question about a simple thing like squash, and look what you get, ignorance and stupidity. Why, any fool knows that's not butternut squash. It's Nelson's butternut squash. Why can't that kid ever get it right? I've told him the proper name of that cultivar a million times, and so it went. The son, trying his best to please the customer, and and thereby his father... And, of course, that is really what the son cared about. It was amazing to see that still at his late age, the son lived in the hope that somehow he would be able to reverse all the years that had already passed, that had gone so badly, and finally come up with the key to pleasing his dad. 
But there was, and you could see it, a growing bitterness in the son. And it was clear the father hadn't much time to work with. His son was about to leave the home and establish his own family. And then his father would be on his own, in the world of his own making. And it was a nasty and a brutish and a cold world. So seeing and feeling this, I began to talk to both of them, hoping to explain to the father how much his son wanted to please him, and to the son how much his father wanted, wanted to love him and to share his life with him. But as I began to talk to them both about their tragic estrangement, an even greater tragedy entered the scene. An older son who was hardened beyond hope and who, as he heard just a few of the words I was speaking toward peace between the father and his younger son, began cynically laughing. And right then my alarm went off. So I woke up. It was time to shave and shower and dress and finish preparing our sermon for this Easter Sunday, 2004. But as I began my chores, the dream stuck in my mind, and I began to wonder at it. It was strange, at least for me, to wake up with the memory of a dream, any dream in my mind. I will admit that recently I have been on a medication for malaria, and that I have actually been having dreams that I remember. But they've been very, very twisted dreams. Dreams you would not want to hear about. (laughs) This dream was not twisted at all. It was completely normal. This dream was the dream of our lives, wasn't it? And so I wondered, I wondered whether, I wondered whether this was a message from God. I wondered whether God had a message for you in my dream. And then I remembered two things. Now, of course, everything in me said, no, that has nothing to do with this morning and certainly nothing to do with our worship and certainly nothing to do with your sermon in our worship service. That's to be a manuscript that you already have on your desk and it's safe and it's secure and it will work, which, of course, is what you want an Easter sermon to do, is work. (laughs) But it kept coming back to me. And as I stood there shaving, I began to think about that dream. And then I remembered two things. I remembered first that this, after all, is the day that ends the week of the Passion. And the Passion is the work of our Lord, the work He came to do. His whole life was His work, but the work that His whole life aimed at was the work of taking upon Himself the cross and giving up His life for us. And here it is, Easter. And then I remembered the scripture I had read the night before to our family. And I remembered that the day that yesterday I had thought maybe I would call David Carell and ask him to preach today, which he's very glad I didn't ask him to do. <laughs> And then I remembered that yesterday, some of you know this, um, our family took a little hit. (laughs) 
a hit that many tears were shed over yesterday. And that's why I didn't want to preach, because I thought I might cry. Um, we have set our hearts on a young child. <laughs> and yesterday afternoon I got a message that, uh, that my dear friend David had called from Africa. And it is... I'm sorry. That this little orphan had died. And so I had the job of calling Michael, who had left Africa, after spending three months caring for this little boy and loving him, and the last three weeks particularly, carrying him in a shatanga on her back. And I had warned her as her father that she had no idea whether or not God would allow her sister, Heather, who is here today, and her husband, Doug, to be successful in their desire to adopt this little boy named Apollo. And I had told her that God is sovereign and that God can do anything he wants to and that God is not bound by the desires of our hearts, that he often delights in giving us those desires, but that at times he has severe mercies for us. Well, you can imagine my father's heart telling Michael that this little one had gone. And all I could hold out for her as a hope was that sometimes when we lose those that we particularly love, God reminds us of a text. I couldn't think of where it was. But I said, you know, it's in Isaiah where it talks about sometimes God taking uh, people so that they can be spared from evil. And Michael says, I, she was crying, but she says, Isaiah 57, 1. So I opened up to Isaiah 57, and she had been in bed asleep along with the dear friends of uh, Joe and Eleanor Rice that Joe and Eleanor provided for them to stay with in London. They just led, they just left the orphanage and the Wegners a couple days earlier. Anyhow, I opened the Bible and as Michael cried at the other end of the line, I read this, the righteous man perishes and no man takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away while no one understands it for the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. So there I was shaving. And I thought back and I remembered the scripture I had read the night before. I want to read it to you. Don't bother opening your Bibles. Just listen. There are times where we ought to just listen to scripture being read. And it's from John 14. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, but listen to it. Jesus said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? 
And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask from in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And then this was the text that just yanked me up short when I was reading last night. He says this. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I thought, you know, I've never noticed that before. And, you know, I realize that you can hardly... You can hardly tell it a, a deep grief when, you know, the sum total of the relationship of a family, and even of Michael to this little child, is three months. The Wegners knew him longer. And really, he's only one of millions and millions and millions and millions of orphans, just in Africa, because of AIDS primarily. And millions of them will die of the same thing he died of, which is malaria. But I looked at this again, and I read it, and I thought, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And I thought, what is Jesus saying there? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Huh. Well, he goes on. He says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. So here he is going to the cross, and he's speaking to his disciples. They won't see him anymore. He says, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And what? He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now, if you're following and you have ears to hear, you realize everything going on here is a family. Right? And if we please him, we please his Father. And if we please his Father, we please him. And if we have him, we have the Father. If we've seen him, we've seen the Father. And it is his, his entire life 
to obey and to do the work of his Father. Now, how do we read this? How do we hear it our whole lives? And we never hear it. And I think the reason is because we've grown up in what we consider to be the real families. Those families like that family of my dream. And so we've been alienated from God the Father because we've had human fathers. And we think human fathers take precedence over God the Father. But you know something? God's the Father that we get fatherhood from. And if you want to know what kind of a father God is, it's shown right here. He is a father who sends his son, what? He sends his son to do his will as a father. It's absolutely fitting that a son will do the will of his father. And how well did Jesus do the will of his father? And so I began to think about this. And then I thought about, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How does he come to us? He and the Father send their spirit. And the spirit dwells in us. And the spirit gives witness that we're born again, that we believe in Jesus. How? How? How does the spirit give witness to us? It doesn't give witness to us because out of us cries, creator, redeemer, sustainer. Which is what most of the mainline churches pray today. No, that's not what it says. The Bible says in Romans that the Spirit itself gives witness with our spirit that we are children of God because our spirits cry out what? Abba, Father. The thing that son could never say to his father without being ridiculed and never say in the presence of his elder brother without being absolutely despised. They were so much older than that. Daddy, Father. Jesus goes on and he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then what happens? Well, Scripture is always honest and accurate, and it shows us for who we are and what we are. And we see an appearance in this in this absolutely delightful, sweet, and eternally precious chapter of Scripture, we have this. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, when, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Not to the world. And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And so we see this division. The world is divided into those who? What? Into those who Jesus and his Father reveal themselves to and those that they don't. To those who keep his words and those who don't. And then he says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because what? Because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, 
I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. You know, if I were to stand up in front of you and tell you that I love my wife, you'd all feel warm and fuzzy. Well, instead, let me tell you I love Jesus Christ. And I love his Father. I mean... You look at this and you think of the love that prevailed between this father and son that he would then go to do what he had been sent to do. The son lived to please his father. And as he entered into his passion, it was the love of his father that compelled him to the cross. Jesus didn't look forward to the cross's pain. He didn't look forward to the terrible agony of bearing the sin of the world, and he certainly didn't look forward to the separation from his father and the abandonment of his father that came when he was on the cross. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read in Mark 14, it tells us this right before his trial and crucifixion. It says, They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I prayed. And then he took with him Peter and James and John, the three beloved disciples. He began to be, Jesus, very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, do you remember what he was saying? He was saying this, listen, Abba. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Can you imagine the heart of his father as he heard his son? Shortly afterward, they came for him, Judas and the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, And you know Peter, he was never one to take a passive role in anything. And so when they came for him, the high priest was there with his slave. And Peter whipped out his sword. You remember that? You have to love him for it, right? And he takes the sword, and we don't know exactly how it happened, but we think that it used to be that they'd bring it down on the guy's head, and we think Peter's aim was slightly off, and it just shaved off an ear. And the Bible tells us the name of the high priest's servant, and the Bible tells us which ear. Do you remember which one? It was his right ear. (laughs) Little details that the Bible gives us. And we read, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Well, the Gospel of Matthew gives us a few more details. We get a hymn from the text in Matthew describing this. It says, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. 
How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? And brothers and sisters, if you look on the cross, yes, there's pain. There's physical pain, but the physical pain is nothing compared to the pain that the Bible tells us about. And what does the Bible focus on? Well, if you've ever been to a Latin service, it's likely that sometime in your life you've heard sermons on the seven sayings of Christ at this time. And I just want to read three of them. We read in Luke 23:34 that Jesus was saying this. He said what? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then it says they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And then in Mark 15:34, it says that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at the end, in Luke 23:46, we're told that Jesus crying out with a loud voice said what? He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Luke says, having said this, he breathed his last. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the path to understanding our Lord. From his conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary to the great day when all those who believe will be gathered together in heaven and will bear his name, the name of the only begotten Son, next to the name of his Father on their foreheads. The Bible starts the story in the Gospel of John saying the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when he was baptized, this son came up out of the water and we read in Mark 1.11, a voice came out of the heaven saying what? You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. At the very beginning of the Gospel of John, we're told of the other time that he cleansed the temple. The second time was right after the triumphal entry at the beginning of the week of his passion. But the first time was long before he went in the temple and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Starbucks coffee. And he made a scourge of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And to those who were selling the doves, he said what? He said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written of him, zeal for thy house shall consume me. And brothers and sisters, if you go through particularly the Gospel of John, but all of the Gospels, and the way I did it is the way you can do it. Just open, your, open some uh, electronic Bible on your computer and uh, just do a search for Father. That's all. And then read the Gospel of John everywhere Father appears. That's all you have to do. And what you'll see is that the overwhelming theme of the life of Jesus Christ was his complete devotion to his father and his complete obedience to the will of his father. In John 6, Jesus says, All that the father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven. Why? And it says there, Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the one who sent him. Who is it? He says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Bible is very clear. Jesus was sent because we screwed it up. And not just ourselves, but in our federal head, Adam. He was our representative. And right away in the garden, he took the tree, the fruit that he was commanded not to, and he ate it. And God had said, the day you do that, you will certainly die. But he took the fruit. And because of that, you and I, as King David said in one of the Psalms, he said, you and I were born, we were conceived in iniquity. Even in our mother's womb, we were under the judgment of God. And there's no hope, none, except that God, for some reason, so loved the world, and that's the part we focus on, that he gave his only begotten son. We don't think about that. That whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him shall be saved, might be saved. And here Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, and you've held him this morning, I have proclaimed him to you. Everyone who beholds his Son and believes in him will have eternal life. This Son was sent as the Lamb, as the one who was killed and whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, your sins, mine. Not his, he was perfect. Now, now that's the gospel. It's very interesting. Last night before going to bed, I was reading a late piece of news put up on Google's new news site. 
And it was an article written about a man named John Crossan, who's a professor up in Chicago and leads the Jesus Seminar. And John Crossan was livid, furious about Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. You know, they say that it's better that you have the right enemies than the right friends. John Crossan is a good enemy to have as a believer. Well, what did he have to say about the movie? Well, the thing he said was, he said that he wished that there would be one evangelical who would stand up in public and would finally say for the whole world to hear that we do not worship a God who would send his son to the cross to suffer as Jesus suffered, to purchase redemption for us. That no God that would ask that his son undertake such obscene suffering, and he had worse words to use for it, that no God was worthy of our worship, and that evangelicals ought to finally tell the whole world that this is not the God that we serve. That our God doesn't need blood. That our God doesn't need His Son's suffering. That our God doesn't take sin that seriously. Well, I know that John Crossan doesn't take sin that seriously, but God is a holy God. And if we expect that our court systems are going to go ahead and, and, and allow our ticket to stand when the police officer has us going 65 in a 45 mile an hour zone, how do you think God is going to handle someone who stands in His presence, who has beheld His Son, His obedient, beloved, only begotten Son, and has spurned Him and has said, I am going to live my life for myself. I will not bow down before such a God, and I will not bow down before a Son who honors that God by bearing upon Himself His Father's wrath on the cross and purchasing redemption for His people. How do you think that son will respond? This is a question that goes through my mind every single time I think about the Father, God, and His Son, Jesus Christ. All I can think about is, how will that son treat you if you turn your back on His Father? And how will the Father treat you if you turn your back on the Son? Well, we don't have to ask the question and, and, and stew in our ignorance. Because the Bible tells us how that father will respond if we spurn his son. It says in Luke 20 that this son, right before he died, told a little story. And here's the story. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him, that's his slave, some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, May it never be. 
But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. It's a curious story, because the theme of the story seems to be a theme of judgment. But you know, the Bible gives us both the no and the yes. And as Jesus prepares to finish the work that God sent him here to do by going on the cross, he gives us this story as a warning that we not join in the crucifixion of his son, that we not spurn the son, that we not turn our backs on the son, that we not make the son just one more of many religious figures who's holy, because that's to spurn the son. Jesus didn't send his son as just one more witness to sort of the, you know, the, 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 the enlightened life. I want to wretch as I say it. Because, you know, the one thing that enlightened life isn't is enlightened. It's entirely enslaved and darkened. Jesus was not a witness to, to the highest morality man could, could attain. He is that. But Jesus was sent to die. And John Crossan hates that. And John Crossan wants me to stand up publicly and to say, all right, ollie ollie and free. It was just a scam. It was to get you to give money to the church. I don't really believe it. But you know, if I were to say that, First of all, I wouldn't be out of a job. Most churches in the world, that's, that's what they say. <laughs> they tell you that Jesus is a good model, which is like saying that uh, the moon is a good light, <laughs> you know, and that the sun is a good night light. I mean, it doesn't come close, right? That's like damning with pathetic praise, all right? No, Jesus did not come to show us what a good man was. Jesus came to show us the love of his Father who sent a perfectly righteous Son, an only begotten Son, to the cross to bear our sins so that we, if we believe in him, might live forever. Now, if you had a son like Jesus, who was obedient his whole life, and then obedient to death, even the death on the cross. If you had a son like that, what would you do with him? You know, just think like a father. What would you do with a son like that? Well, you know what the Bible tells us? It says, therefore, God. (laughs) God the Father has what? Come on, you know what it says. God the Father has highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, there's no failure to communicate here. This son 
was vindicated by his father. That is Easter. And if you place your faith in that son, he is the first of many brothers. (laughs) Come on, we don't have a problem understanding this. And guess what? God says that since He raised Christ, that all those who are in His train all right, will also be raised. And how do you know you will be raised? Because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> and how do you know you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Because you pray, Abba, Father! And the Bible says that the heart that cries out, Abba, Father, is a heart that is an adopted Son of God. (laughs) So It's so gender marked. And guess what? The Bible says women too are adopted sons of God. And that's why in Christ there's neither male nor female. And the Bible says... In Revelation 14.1, as we get to the end of all the ages, it says this, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. (laughs) And today, Jessica, her name is written in his Lamb's book of life. And his name's written on her forehead. Yeah, it's foolish. It's the foolishness of the cross. But you know what the cross is? The cross is the wisdom of God. And one day, every knee shall bow. Because way back in the Old Testament, if you turn to Psalm 16 and look with me, you'll see a prophecy about this son speaking through the prophet. The prophet David. This prophecy about Jesus was given. Speaking to God, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In 2 Corinthians 6.18, Thus says the Lord Almighty, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. The Lord is risen. Come on. Alleluia. All right, again. He is risen. Alleluia. All right, stand up. He he is risen! He is risen indeed! Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Now sing like that. Let's go.